Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, a feminist, client-centered sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Strout. On each show, we tackle a topic that impacts our sexual and reproductive health by inviting members of our community who work specifically on the subject. Reproductive Left covers a variety of issues, including, but certainly not limited to, reproductive rights, feminism, access to services, sexuality, gender, and relationships. To wrap up our show, we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions in our Ask Mabel segment. Be sure to stick around for it. Hi, welcome. Thanks for listening. I have a great interview for you all today. Um, It's not this interviewee's first time on the show, and it certainly won't be her last. The interview is with Andrea Irwin, the executive director of Mabel Wadsworth Center. Once again, I'd like to remind listeners that I work at Mabel Wadsworth Center, and I do work closely with Andrea on education and advocacy work for the center. A little bit about Andrea's background. Um, Before she came to Mabel Wadsworth Center, she was the legal and policy director at Consumers for Affordable Healthcare. Um, That's a statewide consumer health advocacy organization, and she worked there for five years to defend and promote the Affordable Care Act. She is a local. She grew up right here or right around the corner in Brewer, Maine, and she graduated from Bates College in Lewiston and then attended the American University Washington College of Law in D.C. Today, we are going to be discussing the Texas abortion law that re- that the um, Supreme Court recently agreed to hear. This law would require doctors um, that perform abortions to have admitting privileges to hospitals within 30 miles of the clinic and would also require outpatient clinics providing abortions to spend anywhere from a few hundred thousand dollars to millions to upgrade to ambulatory surgical center standards. In this episode, Andrea will explain the case and how it impacts women in the United States. Additionally, she talks briefly about the attacks on Planned Parenthood and how that impacts Mabel Wadsworth Center, and she actually has some exciting news to announce. Um, Before I play the interview, I do want to remind you that you can find Reproductive Left on SoundCloud, iTunes, or whatever podcast app you use. And of course, right here on WERU. Enjoy the interview. Welcome, Andrea, (laughs) to Reproductive Left. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, Abby. I'm excited to be back on Reproductive Left. Yes, that's true. Very good point. Um, can you first tell our listeners a little bit about why this Texas law is so problematic? Yes. So this law is a type of trap law, which is targeted regulation of abortion providers. And these are laws being brought by opponents of abortion with one specific purpose, to close abortion clinics by making it too onerous to keep them operating. And uh, HB2, which is the omnibus package in Texas that passed and went into effect in 2013, um, included many restrictions on abortion, uh, ranging from a 20-week ban to some trap provisions. And this is actually the law that Wendy Davis famously filibustered for 11 hours. So this has been in the news quite a bit and uh, has 
has led to a great deal of activism on both sides, both in Texas and across the country for the past few years. Uh, there's two provisions of the law that the court, the Supreme Court will review. The first uh, problematic provision um, requires that any abortion doctors have admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles. And the second requires that abortion clinics meet standards of an ambulatory surgical center. So they almost have to be uh, like a mini hospital. So I can talk a little bit about each of those and why those impose burdens on providers if that's that, that would helpful. be great um, to talk a little bit about why um, admitting privileges are problematic because it sounds like that's a good safety measure. It does, right. And I think that's what's uh, so smart about the anti-choice movement is that in the past, you know, particularly in the 90s, uh, much of the extreme part of the movement was a lot of violence and really extreme protests against uh, abortion clinics, and it was a lot easier to get the media to pay attention to that. And then more recently, they've been bringing these trap laws all under the guise of protecting women's health and about safety. And if you just hear admitting privileges for doctors, well, that doesn't sound so bad. But when you actually look at implementing them, uh, they really are quite onerous. So. Admitting privileges in particular um, are really kind of silly, <laughs> and it probably doesn't surprise you to hear that doctors performing abortion procedures don't need them. Um, any patient that has a medical emergency can go to the emergency room without someone admitting them, so you don't actually have to have that relationship for that to happen. And in rural areas in particular, it's actually geographically impossible for doctors to get admitting privileges somewhere within 30 miles. So that rules out a lot of clinics that way. Uh, and it's also just difficult for a lot of doctors to get them because the procedure is so controversial. So a lot of hospitals wouldn't even uh, grant admitting privileges to doctors that provide abortion care. So that's another problem. And then ambulatory surgical centers, making that a requirement, is burdensome in terms of cost, but it also impacts the quality of care. In terms of cost, um, it imposes these really, really strict standards onto the uh, ways that the actual um, clinic has to be set up. So things like square footage standards and requirements for equipment, like scrub sinks and air filtration systems. and things that you really don't need to perform first trimester abortions. Um, and they can cost millions to build and maintain. So for example, uh, Whole Women's Health, which is the, um, the group of clinics that are bringing the lawsuit, that are challenging these uh, provisions in court out of Texas, they actually found that it cost $40,000 more a month to implement these ambulatory surgical center requirements than what they had been doing previously. Wow. Which is just incredible. And you can see how it would very quickly put these clinics out of business. Um, and as you know, most abortions are non-surgical and they don't need to be performed in a hospital setting. And uh, abortion is really safe. It's one of the safest medical procedures in the US. It's 40 times safer than colonoscopy, for example. And it's safer than carrying a pregnancy to term. So 
all of these requirements are just not necessary and they're definitely not making it any safer for women. You also mentioned that um, the surgical centers would also impact the quality of care. Yes, and this is really, I think, almost worse than the cost uh, burden because, and, and I think particularly for people like us uh, that work at a clinic like Mabel Wadsworth Center where we take the patient care so so seriously and you know we and you you're you're someone that is a clinical assistant and you're there during the procedure and you are there to help make the the person comfortable um part of creating uh an ambulatory surgical center is that you're also turning the clinic into more like a hospital setting so you're instead of just having um nurses in the room in regular scrubs, they would have to wear also bonnets and booties and surgical masks, and the clinics would not be able to use heating pads anymore uh, to provide comfort because they might harbor bacteria. So again, these are just not appropriate for the kinds of procedures that most women are getting because um, in most cases, in 90% in of all abortions, those are happening in the first trimester. Those are not surgeries that are requiring these types of um, facilities. So, Yeah, and there's been a switch in the past few years from calling the suction abortion procedure used to always be called um, surgical abortion, and it's really switched to either being really described as the aspiration abortion or suction abortion because calling it a surgical abortion is really misleading because mm -hmm. there is no surgery being done. Mm -hmm. um, so if the court, the Supreme Court, rule, rules against whole women's health, what would that mean for women in Texas? Well, it would mean that the remaining clinics that are there will likely be forced to close. Um, they've already closed um, from the law going into effect in 2013. So when the um, before the law was enacted, there were 41 abortion clinics in the state. And it's now gone down to 18. And so it's likely that the number would actually dwindle even further down to just 10. And that would create huge burdens for women, uh, forcing them to travel much further distances. Uh, for example, a woman living in El Paso would have to drive more than 500 miles or seven and a half hours round trip to San Antonio just to get abortion care in her home state. And uh, what I find really interesting to think about, too, is this isn't just having an impact on rural women. It also impacts women in the urban areas. Um, a recent study just came out showing that women seeking abortion in some of the cities like Dallas, Fort Worth, and Austin are facing wait times of up to 20 days before they can get an abortion. And as you know, um, the more you have to wait, the more costly the procedure can become, and it just adds additional stress to a woman that's already experiencing um, a, a situation that she probably does not want to be in, and mm. it just makes a difficult situation that much more so. And potentially feeling really sick. Mm -hmm. You know, we see clients a lot who are having just awful symptoms, um, so having absolutely. to suffer through those extra days. Can... Right, absolutely. Yeah, you, exactly. We, we never know, um, you don't know what someone's experience is. It could really range uh, from a variety of circumstances. And 
when someone does not want to be pregnant anymore, they want to be not pregnant anymore yesterday. And then along with that, sadly, a lot of women in Texas already think because of this law that abortion is actually illegal. Mm -hmm. And so the clinics and the um, abortion funds in the state are doing a lot of education, having to just explain to women that it is in fact legal, and even though it's harder to get, that they are still available, at least right now. Um, And I think finally what's most troubling about what's already happened and what could get much worse if the court rules um, against whole women's health is that a study just came out that found that uh, anywhere from between 100,000 and 240,000 women in Texas, uh, this is between the ages of 18 and 49, have attempted to self-induce abortions, which is just uh, mind-boggling when you think about it. Uh, You know, I'm sure that in every state there are women that self-induce for a variety of reasons, but This is clearly an increase over what Texas women have experienced in the past, and there's the study shows a direct correlation between the implementation of HB2 and these clinics closing and the number of women that are self-inducing. And it's it's just so dangerous for women's health, which is the exact opposite of what the law purports to do. So it's it's just a sham law. It's not actually meant to protect women. It's meant to close abortion clinics and end access to abortion care. Which feels like we're moving back in time to when abortion was not legal exactly. in the United States. Um, would this ruling, um, if they ruled against Whole Women's Health, would that um, impact women across the United States or would it really only be um, Texas that suffers? So it depends on how the court rules. Uh, If the court rules very narrowly um, and just focuses on the Texas law, um, which again is a trap law, so a targeted regulation of abortion provider law, which there are similar trap laws in other states that um, have experienced uh, similar clinic closures or threats of clinic closures. So that could actually force um, some of those clinics to close if the court rules against Whole Women's Health. So for example, in Mississippi, there's only one clinic remaining open. And uh, similarly, in um, a few other states, mostly red states, mostly states where there are a lot of very poor women and more women of color, immigrant women, um, there are clinics that would potentially be forced to close because those laws on the books would be upheld if the court ruled against whole women's health. On the flip side, if um, the court rules more broadly and they very affirmatively uphold Roe v. Wade, that would be a, a great win for our side and it would be very positive. Uh, I think it's also interesting to remember that this case will be decided in a presidential election year, and so whatever happens, I think that that will have an impact on the discussion in the election and the campaign and and how each side looks at the issue. Um, For example, if the court upholds the Texas law and you know, our side loses, essentially, I think that we could see uh, 
a big outpouring of anger from people who might have otherwise taken our rights for granted. There's a lot of talk about that, that people don't, you know, understand the threats Mm. enough. Uh, So that could certainly happen. And then alternatively, if we won, that could really galvanize the anti-choice movement and get them to turn out their side to vote in the presidential election and all the, you know, all the elections. So I think that the timing is also really interesting. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. I'm Abby Strout. Here with me today is Andrea Irwin, the executive director of Mabel Wadsworth Center. As we see laws restricting access, we've talked about a few today um, being passed throughout the country. So waiting periods, the trap laws, um, forced ultrasounds in the past. Do you anticipate more cases like this reaching the level of the Supreme Court? If the court rules in favor of Whole Women's Health, That means that trap laws uh, in similar states would similarly be struck down. So in a way, this is like the final stopgap decision. Um, So that's the good news. Like it will hopefully be very clear that the court will say these types of laws are an undue burden on women or not and really make that clear for people so that moving forward, we know one way or the other what that really means. Of course, that might not happen, in which case we would continue to have more litigation. Um, But I I feel pretty confident that they will recognize that, gosh, here we are, it'll be, what, 24 years after the Casey decision, and things are just really mucked up and that they need to write some clear language and, and give direction to the lower courts about how to interpret the state laws so my hope is that we'll get a really clear ruling that upholds Roe really strongly and and directs states um, to stop imposing such silly restrictions. Mm. Can you explain the next step in this process? So they've d- chosen to hear the case. When will the hearing happen? Um, and then I think you've said that the decision will probably be made this summer, but if you can just explain that a little bit more for our listeners. Sure, yes. So I think that they'll probably have oral arguments um, sometime this winter, probably March, February or March. And then, um, like we talked about offline earlier, because it's such a major case, I suspect it will take quite some time for them to make their decision Um, And then they'll probably not actually issue it until the end of the term, so likely end of June, maybe early July, so very much like the marriage case that came down at the end of the summer, or excuse me, at the end of the term, beginning of the summer this past year. So we'll be waiting a while to find out. Nervously waiting. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And in the meantime, as we're all waiting on this major decision. Um, Is there anything activists can do? Yes, there's a lot activists can do. Uh, So the first thing, and this is like happening right now, is that um, national organizations are writing their amicus briefs, which are their friend of the court briefs. So that's just where uh, an organization 
um, submits a brief to the court to just add on their um, opinion and why they think that the case, you know, why they agree with either the challenger um, or the other side. And so a lot of uh, national groups are working on these and they're looking for stories from women whose lives have been impacted by having access to abortion care. So for women that uh, would like to share those stories, I would encourage them to seek out those opportunities. Um, One example that I can share is that as an attorney, when I was in law school, I got involved in Law Students for Reproductive Justice, and they're looking for stories from attorneys who had abortions that want to share their stories because they think that that could potentially be compelling to the justices Mm. who are also attorneys. It might work. (laughs) (laughs) But there are a ton of organizations like that. Um, You know, certainly groups, I'm sure like physicians will be doing the same thing, looking for women that um, are doctors that had abortions and people whose lives have been impacted. So that's one thing. Um, And then the other... uh, sort of activities would be all sort of related to the upcoming elections in the next year. Because really, uh, you know, in addition to the presidential election and making sure that the candidates understand the importance of the court to our reproductive rights, uh, the, the Senate is also really important to deciding who sits on the judiciary, both at the Supreme Court and at the lower court level. And so we always have to be reminding our senators that we care about the issue of the courts, that we want people on the courts that represent our values, particularly with respect to reproductive rights. And then this is also true at the state level, because the state legislators are the ones, of course, that make laws that can either restrict or affirm our right to reproductive health. So those are things that I would recommend. So I'm actually going to switch gears completely right now because um, since I have you on Reproductive Left and I have been asked so many times um, that I want to give our listeners an answer about how the attacks on Planned Parenthood currently, so the threats of defunding, actually defunding clinics in certain states, Mm -hmm. um, how these attacks are impacting Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. I've gotten that question a lot, too, so it's a good um, thing to talk about. Well, as you know, we are completely independent and don't accept any state or federal funding. So other than uh, taking Medicaid or or Medicare for our patients, uh, we don't take any government money. So unlike Planned Parenthood and some other providers who do contract with the state or federal government, We don't have to worry about them threatening to pull our funding. So in that sense, we are immune from these kinds of threats, uh, which means that we're freer to be advocates and we don't have to be as concerned about these kinds of um, attacks from that perspective. Um, Of course, it also means that we need resources because we're not getting it from the government. And so... Fundraising is a really important aspect of our work, and we need our community to support us, either through uh, making donations or people uh, supporting us by becoming a client of the center and coming here for their regular well-woman care or other gynecological care and certainly telling their friends and family about us and doing the same. Um, But also, I think it's really interesting to note that it's 
really a misconception about Planned Parenthood's role as the major abortion provider in the country. Um, they're certainly the most well-known provider, but in fact, 60 to 80 percent of abortion care in this country is provided by independent providers like Mabel Wadsworth Center. And to clarify further, most of those providers are for-profit, and again, we're not-for-profit. In fact, we're one of only 14 independent not-for-profit feminist health centers in the country to provide abortion care. So we are really unique here in Maine. And uh, we've been doing this for 31 years, and it's really incredible. And, and I've had conversations like this, and I know you have too, with many people about how, uh, how much foresight the founders of Mabel Wadsworth Center had when deciding in 1984 to not accept funding from the government because at that time they were really worried about um, the Reagan administration. And now here we are three decades later and these attacks on Planned Parenthood are um, similarly threatening to the funding of, of women's health. So we've been really fortunate to be able to be independent for all these years, but we, we definitely need support from our community to, to keep the doors open. Um, but more broadly, the attacks on Planned Parenthood are attacks on abortion care and women's reproductive rights. So I think that there's been um, th just the entire climate around women's health care has been more charged ever since this all started this summer. Uh, for example, we were the targets of 40 Days for Life protests. And I think it's also just led to an increase in stigma and shame around the procedure, which is the exact opposite of what we've been trying to do. So, I, you know, I think it's really difficult because um, as much as we try to improve access to women's health care and all women's health care, abortion care, birth control, the whole spectrum, um, these attacks have just been such a distraction from that and have really taken away from our ability to move women's health forward. Um, so it's, it's been a huge distraction, and I really hope we can move forward soon. Well, speaking of moving forward, um, we have spent a lot of this talking about, I mean, it's hard to do reproductive rights work, but we do have something exciting coming up that is proactive. Um, would you like to talk? A little bit about this. I'll let you um, tell our listeners about it. <laughs> yeah, this is very exciting. So by the time this airs, uh, the ACLU of Maine will have filed a complaint against the Maine Department of Health and Human Services on behalf of Mabel Wadsworth Center and Maine Family Planning and Plan Planned Parenthood of uh, Northern New England, which are the three abortion providers in Maine, uh, calling on the state to uh, provide abortion care, to pay for abortion care for poor women who are eligible for Maine care, for, Medi for Medicaid, which is the state's public insurance program. And this is huge. You know, we're, we're really proclaiming that women have the right to abortion care no matter how much money they make, no matter what insurance coverage they have, and it's a really exciting, proactive measure. So I feel really optimistic about it and hopeful. 
And for our listeners, you've heard us talk about public funding for abortion um, numerous times on the podcast because it's been a very important topic to us at Mabel Wazer Center. Um, and stay tuned for next month's where we will actually um, talk with one of the attorneys defending the case and um, to get more information about what's happening here in Maine and the ways in which we're taking proactive measures. Mm-hmm. Um, so Andrea, I want to thank you for being on Reproductive Left once again with me today. It thank was great. you. That's it for today. Once again, we did not have time for our Ask Mabel segment where we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions. I want to thank you all for listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center. If you want to know more about our work, visit www.mabelwadsworth.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can also follow Reproductive Left on SoundCloud, and you can subscribe on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. And please tune in next time, the first Tuesday of the month at 4.30, right here at Community Radio WERU. 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, or online at WERU.org. Thanks.